Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture today is Mike Indian, political commentator and author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, well, we have to start by talking about the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, but um, I think perhaps looking at the reaction from the um, political world, it did seem to bring politicians together in a way that perhaps they are not always. Mm, it was just so we're recording this a week after the the sad news of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the, an event that's been long anticipated, uh, long planned for, but what its arrival can be no less consequential, irrespective of how you viewed the monarchy as an institution. It's it's been a momentous week in uh, in the in the British establishment and across the country. Some very moving scenes. We we saw this play out on a day that history is also being made by the new Liz Truss government as well, which will be will be talk, discussing that shortly. Uh, but even if that that hadn't happened, we'd still be we'd still have a lot to discuss, and we have to think start with the reaction of the new prime minister herself, three days into office, having been formally appointed by the Queen only last Tuesday. And having to deal with this utterly uh, epoch-defining moment. And Liz Truss is not a gifted public speaker. She is not somebody who's very comfortable in the limelight. She's someone who has has entered office with a lot of people, including myself, I have to say, uh, making fun of her. She's she's certainly meme-worthy. But I have to say, actually, the burden of responsibility that's fallen on her shoulders... I think she's behaved admirably. I think she's handled herself as well as she can do in that situation. I don't think any any uh, prime minister in recent memory would have been prepared to have dealt with that. Mm. And I think there are a couple of decisions that have been made behind the scenes that I would say political decisions that have been questionable. But on the whole, the prime minister's had to be front and centre. She has subordinated her uh, political agenda, rightly so, to the period of national mourning mm. and she's had to in essence articulate the nation whilst having all of her predecessors for the first time in living memory we have six former prime ministers alive from john major all the way through to boris johnson mm. and she's had to contend with them as well it's an enviable task and i have to say that one of my one of my friends is a bit scathing of liz truss's remarks i said downing street and i have to say they're absolutely fine there were nothing exceptional but it would be wrong to say that she hasn't comported herself well in this situation. I want to give her credit for that because I think given given the situations mm. that we're looking at, praise for Liz Trust will be in short supply 
in the coming weeks. Yes, I'm sure you're right. It was an extraordinary week. I mean, I was away with a, a news junkie who, of course, was obsessed with watching what was happening, first of all, with Truss's government. And then, of course, he'd actually remarked on, the, on how frail the Queen seemed to be looking. And then we got that news. So, yes, the television was barely barely off last week. I suppose one should be thankful that it didn't happen earlier. I mean, if it happened before we knew who the new Prime Minister was, constitutionally, what on earth would have gone on then? I do worry, and I think the other the other figure that we have to discuss is the the the, the recent former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, mm. in the situation. And let's be honest here, Boris Johnson has paid a very eloquent tribute to the Queen in Parliament that was very well received, particularly by the right-wing press but also he, he's a, you know he as a set piece speech giver he does deliver on those occasions and his great man view of history i however have perhaps a slightly unorthodox view on this that i'm quite relieved that the, the handover was able to happen mm-hmm. and this didn't occur under a johnson premiership because given everything that's going on there would have been a sneaking suspicion that johnson would have tried to use this i think to rehabilitate his own image much in the same way that we've seen Prince Andrew re-enter the public eye, albeit in a more discreet fashion as well, there would be a, there would have been a calculation at the back of Johnson's mind that he could use this, I think, to emulate his great hero, Sir Winston Churchill, and be the man who articulates the Queen's passing. Mm. He was able to do that, but thankfully the transfer of power occurred. It's remarkable it happened only two days before the Queen passed away at Balmoral. That said, um, it would have been, in my mind, wholly inappropriate. And I have to say that Boris Johnson's tribute rang hollow in my ears, given the fact that this is a man who months ago had to apologise to the Queen because his staff were having parties in Danish on the eve of the Queen's, uh, the, the Queen sitting alone in the Royal Chapel at Windsor. Prince Philip's funeral as well. So I appreciate that there will be people at the moment who would probably resent me making a political point here, but I would caution against anyone using this to try and reevaluate what's happened with the Johnson Premiership in recent years, mainly because there's been a significant number of actions undertaken by Johnson that's undermined the credibility of office. He wasn't someone, in my opinion, who was fit to hold the office of Prime Minister, and it was entirely appropriate that he had to give his tribute from the back benches. This event does not subordinate or wash away the actions of his government as well, which are mm. responsible largely for the situation that we're facing at the moment. And of course, Liz Truss is part of that government. The third, the third part I have to say uh, to discuss this is the reaction of Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party in this. And in this, I feel there's a particularly good photo of the first time that Sir Keir met uh, King Charles III. Still very odd to say those words. And you can see the hand on the arm. There's clearly a, a great deal of rapport there. And if you look at the the Labour leaders who have been successful in the past, they're the ones who've enjoyed good relationships with the monarchy. Even Michael Foote, who was famously from the left of the party, was uh, enjoyed a relationship with, with the Queen Mother, particularly over his, his, his donkey jacket as well. And Labour, I think, succeeds when it can tap into that patriotism, which is so often synonymous in the minds of many people, with the Red Wall voters they're seeking to recapture. And I think Kistan has been able to do this with a degree of subtlety that undermines his skills, I think, as a politician, that he's enabled to do it without appearing opportunistic. And he's looked at times, I think, very prime ministerial doing it as well. And as much as I had to give Liz Truss credit, I think the politician, the senior politician who's gauged 
the reaction the best has been Starmer overall in terms of his words and the one who probably deserves the most credit. And I think this is reflected in the first opinion polls we're seeing under the trust government of sort of a 10 to 12 point lead under that Labour currently has that I think Labour will benefit from this. Now, obviously, the, the lead is fragile. A 10 to 12 point lead is not a lot, particularly given that we could be as much as two years out from an election now if the economic climate looks to be the way it is. But our cohort of politicians has had to respond to a new sense of English identity in the sense that the the, the only parallel in this is the sense that Churchill was able to articulate the new Elizabethan age now. And Liz Truss did talk about the new Carolinian age as well. I don't think that King Charles III will have the same resonance with that, which means I think it falls again to this generation of political leaders in the next election probably is in the same way that 1964 and 1945 and 1997 play in our recent political history of defining a theme that enables um, leaders to get behind and unite. And you'll note that all those elections were Labour victories as well. So there is a lesson in history there for Keir Starmer about how to succeed and to turn this occasion, his his very well-articulated response in the long run, as to someone who has a vision for Britain's future. I mean, amidst all this, the, the sort of sadness, you know, we've talked so much about the the downside of our parliamentary system and so many things in the last year, two years, even three years, where we've virtually wanted to hold our head in our hands when we witness what's going on in Parliament. I do think both the Commons and the Lords, that the tributes to the Queen were not just heartfelt, but often... You know, really amusing. I mean, Theresa May, again, somebody we didn't think of as being one of the best of speakers, um, hence her nickname, the Maybot. But I thought her story about the, the Queen and dropping the cheese on the floor was was lovely. Yes. Um, so many good stories, sort of showing you know, our Parliament in the, perhaps the best light, all coming together. Um, we will, though, take a short break because we're going to look now at the new uh, Truss government. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon. It's in conversation for the bigger picture with political commentator Mike Indian. Uh, Mike, we talked about the fact that the you know, the Queen was able to meet her new Prime Minister, and there was just time for the cabinet announcements um, to be announced. Um, so. What were the surprises? What were the the mistakes in waiting that you think are are going to emerge once we get through this period of mourning? Well, it's interesting because we, on the day the Queen passed, there were still press releases coming out of Downing Street. Obviously, the appointments are saying the Queen has agreed the appointment of so-and-so. Um, and one of the oddities of our constitutional system is that, in theory, power rests of the monarch. And before the Queen passed, there was a lot made of the fact that in that brief period between uh, Boris Johnson resigning and Liz Truss coming in, 
that the queen was technically the old, you know, the holder of all executive power in the country. The, the, the transition happened smoothly. And perhaps if anyone questions the the validity of the of the constitutional monarchy that we have, we could say that actually a head of state role that is able to function as, as effectively as a figure as the queen has has done over the last seventy years yeah. is a system that deserves to be tried out. But that's a different debate. The 15th Prime Minister of Elizabeth II's reign and the first of Charles III's reign. I'm still trying to get my head around yes, King yes. Charles III. Um, so the, the appointments that were made in the government were not a surprise. And quite refreshingly, actually, for somebody who works in public affairs, uh, works in politics, the, the, they had actually given a lot of thought to the people they wanted to hold the roles in. And... One bit, perhaps, of the long leadership contest. Well, this is the thing, and I think Liz Truss's. Uh, okay, so I'll I'll say first. I'll say I'll say the positive things first. That there are some <laughs> people in this new cabinet who I actually admire. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three people I want to single out in particular, who are interesting. Uh, the first is the appointment of James Cleverly to be foreign secretary. Uh, I've actually, years and years ago, when Cleverly first entered Parliament, so for context, he's a former member of the London Assembly, a territorial reservist. He's actually quite a refreshing uh, uh, personality. He's quite candid. He's someone who was a Johnson loyalist, but he's actually very, very articulate. and Someone who's actually, I think, will, will, will suit the role of Foreign Secretary quite well, down to the ground, I would say. There also, I think we have to draw attention to Penny Morden has had to serve a rather high profile role as, as the as the leader of the House, but also Lord President of the Council. So she was the one who presided over the Accession Council, which proclaimed a new king. An incredibly interesting task and something that she would not have expected to have done. But she, someone again who I think who handled herself with a great deal of comportment and bearing. She'll be in charge of government business. And the last one is someone who has had a, well, two, I should mention, indeed. Um, first of all, Chloe Smith, who's a new working pension secretary. Uh, I, for disclosure, I um, actually nearly went to work for her after university. She's a very kind and decent woman. And I had a friend of mine who has done some work with her in her previous role as Minister for Disabilities and said that actually her disability awareness is absolutely excellent. And that that reflects the the Chloe that I I have known over the years, a very kind and interesting um, woman. And someone who's actually worked very hard under all three governments and has finally been rewarded with a seat around the cabinet table. Two more to mention very briefly, or the last one, I should say, um, Ed Arger, minister. He's, he's the former NHS Estates Minister. He's now the Minister for the Cabinet Office. So he'll have a, a large role to play behind the scenes, very well regarded in Conservative circles, seen as a very capable, confident minister, held the Minister of State portfolio for three years during the pandemic, had to deal with a lot of the uh, the flack that was coming the department's way. Got his way. I think he, he survived under about three different health secretaries in the end, from Matt Hancock through to Sajid Javid through to Steve Barclay. So he stayed the course in that department. So he's been rewarded with a seat around the cabinet table. I'm almost inclined to say that um, the cabinet office's gain is DHSC's loss. But there you go. So there are there are those around the cabinet table, I think, are are, are competent, good people to watch. Uh, Tom Tugendhat as well joins as Minister for Security. Kind of inevitable, really. Kemi Badenoch is now International Trade Secretary as well. The key level cabinet appointments, though, are, interestingly, they're all about 
people who are close to Liz Truss. So her Deputy Prime Minister and Secretary of State for Health is Dr. Therese Coffey, again regarded as a minister with excellent attention to detail, but facing considerable challenges mm. in the running of that department. In fact, I, did see, that... I did see a lot of comment during the election saying that that would be an ideal post for, for Sunak, but Sunak and all his allies seem to be getting the bombs well, rushed. This, well, you, you've hit the nail on the head there, Simon, that there is virtually no Sunakites around the table. This is not a big tent government. Liz Truss, who was elected, received only one-eighth of the votes of the Tory parliamentary party on the first round and was elected uh, with uh, 47% of the overall Tory membership backing her. The turnout in that leadership election was 86%, hasn't extended the hand, really. Uh, Rishi Sunak, bear in mind that when Boris Johnson defeated Jeremy Hunt, he offered Hunt the position of Defence Secretary, which could be seen as equivalent to Hunt's previous role of Foreign Secretary. It's quite an important role, especially given the recent interventions that, that Ben Wallace has made mm. in that role as well. Uh, her new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, a long-standing ally, somebody who shares very much shares her Liz Truss's philosophy, Trussonomic philosophy of uh, deficit fuel tax cuts to generate growth. We're going all the way back to Reaganomics there as well. The appointment that I think gave me the most pause for thought was probably Suella Braveman, the former Attorney General, who is now um, the Home Secretary, and she replaces Pretty Patel. So you've got again, so a lot's been made of the diversity of this cabinet. The 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 top four, top five big roles. I think we have to include the Secretary of State for Health in that as well, given that the department now accounts for roughly thirty percent of all government spending, including on the mm-hmm. NHS as well, and it's the Deputy Prime Minister. Two are all held by women there are no white men in any of those roles so this is a government clearly that they thought about that sort of pr point about making the diversity point as well but there isn't going to be a great deal of challenge i'd say around the table the other thing that's Mm -hmm. interesting is that trust inside government has slimmed down the downing street structure so you might remember that some of the issues that were identified by sue gray's initial report and review and then her follow-up report was the fact that Downing Street essentially functions at the moment as somewhere between a private office and mm. a full government department. It's neither at the moment. It's, eventually, it's basically a scaled-up private office. It's not really a department in its own right. And there was a call for to establish a full office of the Prime Minister. Bear in mind that if you look, for example, at, say, the equivalent post, say, in Germany, Angela Merkel has a whole department of people reporting to her as well. Now, Liz Truss has opted instead for a... Something actually I think was quite an admirable model at the start where she slimmed down the Downing Street operation. There was a point made by a rather more astute political observer than myself who said, actually, the inevitable consequence is that when prime ministers do this and they need to exert control, they find they can't. So in the end, they always end up scaling up. There's never any prime minister who wishes they had fewer people working for them in number 10. They always want more. And this is a lesson. You, you had talked, though, about the bloated cabinet before. So... Presumably, it is it is better for it to be smaller, isn't it? Or, or do you, or do we you simply feel that it'll it'll grow well, ca- like topsy the, over time? Well, the cabinet is still there's an issue between the Downing Street operation and the cabinet. It depends on the style of government. Now, Truss is choosing to devolve control down to her ministers, not, most of whom will agree with her on the key points. There isn't going to be a lot of challenge on her issue of tax mm. cuts, for example, given that her main critic for that, Rishi Sunak, is on the back benches. Yes. The other issue is that the cabinet is still very large. There are a lot of ministers attending cabinet as well, in addition to the 22 posts. <laughs> the, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, the cabinet stayed roughly the similar size for that. And there are a lot of ministers who, for example, there's a minister for climate in there now. Mm. So the cabinet is still very large. The other issue is that 
if ministers, if there is going to be a slimmed down downstream operation, then policy needs to be generated much more at a departmental level. And that means that ministers in that level need to have access to not just civil service advice, but also political advisors as well. And this means that we'd have to accept a growth in special advisors at a ministerial level. So a typical minister may have one or two special advisors. Actually, if they're going to generate policy, they need more than that. They need two, three, four, perhaps, advisors around them. And also, don't forget, they're drawing on a limited pool as well. The Conservative Party only tends to employ people that are Conservative Party members. The exception, the notable exception, the one thing that Boris Johnson did that I thought was intriguing was bringing Dominic Cummings into mm. the into the tent because he wasn't a Tory party member. And as much as that that you know episode had its yes. flaws considerably because of the man himself, we have to accept that actually there are after 12 years in office, the pool of advisors to draw on is yes. quite small. So I don't even if you wanted to scale it up, you'd have to look outside the traditional conservative post for that. So I don't suspect there's going to be a lot of new ideas coming out of government, but the actual model, the decision to give more control to junior, you know, to, to, to cabinet ministers and their juniors could be very interesting. But it also means that when something goes wrong, Downing Street will want to know what's going on. And I think inevitably, as this economic crisis deepens, we will see the the trifecta at the top of government. So I'm talking about Liz Trust, Therese Coffey and Kwasi Kwarteng tightening control into them as well. Mm. When, um, before the announcement of the Queen's death, I mean, one of the first things we knew we were going to get from the, the new government or the new prime minister was um, some announcement about energy, which obviously is preying on everybody's mind. They need to get something sorted out before the winter actually rears its head. And they did make the announcement, but of course, because of the news about Queen Elizabeth, it didn't get quite as much coverage as it might. So we ought to talk about that a, a little, shouldn't we? Because there was very little debate about what it involved, frankly, compared well, to what we would expect if there'd been if we had another sad news. Well, it's it's an extraordinary intervention for this. So essentially, what the government has done is, for the first time since the nineteen seventies, the late seventies, they've imposed price controls on a market. So essentially, what the government is doing is it's fixing the per kilowatt uh, our price of energy as well. So the price cap is essentially gone. And it means that you will not pay a certain you won't pay a certain amount, you won't pay above a certain amount mm. for this as well. Um, it means that the average bill will be fixed at around about £2,500 from October. That means that although the price cap will rise, it won't go up by as much as we thought it was going to. Bear in mind that the the annual bill without the intervention would have been three and a half thousand pounds. So effectively, trust is saving um, around about a gra- each household a grand, which is a lot of money over that. In addition to the four hundred pounds that everyone's getting, so effectively, there's a fourteen hundred pound on average uh, discount on energy bills. But the average bill last year is still going to be almost double. It's going to be double what it is now because it was it was twelve hundred seventy seven pounds as well. This guarantee has been put in place for ten years. It's costing nearly two hundred billion pounds as well. The average fuel duty would be limited to about 34 pence per kilowatt hour and 10.3 pence per gas. There will be a slight rise in standing charges. The tricky thing is everyone needs to look at their energy to see what this means for them. So, yes, you are getting some degree of protection from this as well. It was it was it was an unprecedented level of intervention from from a, from a yes. government that's very much free market. Yes. But it I... also sorry, but it also means that it does nothing to address the failure of the energy market overall, which is the fact that we have lacked the gas 
capacity storage, which actually Liz Truss presided over the sale of that when she was Chief Secretary mm-hmm. of Treasury. It does nothing to remedy the fact that we're still, once again, dependent on these big energy providers as well. And it does nothing to deal with the UK's energy security issues as well. So it's a massive intervention, but it very much is a sticking plaster. Um, yeah, a sticking plaster, which, is, as more than one commentator has pointed out, and if we're still in the same position when um, uh, you know the end of the subsidy comes, can you actually imagine them removing it? I'll We've be honest. No I, problems, and and you know it's expensive enough. As I, can't, it is. I can't see the energy market going back to what it was before. Mm. With the that that that, that essentially what Truss is having to do is admit that a over a decade of conservative energy policy has failed. And the other thing she's done, for example, like lifting the ban on fracking, the moratorium on fracking that's been in place will do nothing to help bring household bills down. The, if the government was serious, they would look again at onshore wind farms as one way of doing that too. They would look seriously at investing in nuclear, a major, I, I think if, it, it's hard, I don't know if what Labour would have done differently because this, this policy was essentially yeah. borrowed from the Labour Party as well. And, and like like water, which we were talking about, you know, so much in the in the summer. I mean, these are these are long term strategies. Nothing can happen instantly. No, unfortunately, it's it, it, ba- yeah, bad planning. Chickens coming home to roost. Now we only have time for one more brief topic. So, what would you like to choose? I know you've got a couple on. I think it's important that we have a look at what's happening in Ukraine because obviously the Queen's death has rightly, I think, in this country. Uh, taken precedent in the headlines but it's not an all-consuming thing and as we've said it's 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 important i think to have a wider awareness of what's going on in the world you know we've, we've seen a a peaceful change of government in this country and we've seen uh, the head of state uh, passing uh, but there are momentous events happening out on europe's eastern fringes and what we have seen over the last week or so is uh, ukraine engaging in a counter-offensive against in the kharkiv region in the east of the country that's seen uh, the, the Vladimir Zelensky's government claims that he recaptured about 6,000 square kilometres of territory, pushing the Russians back, uh, taking away gains that they, that has been made over the last, the, the months that the war's been going on. However, one that what we're not seeing is a, is any sign of, Vladimir Putin giving up. I mean, why would we? To be fair, he's yes. he stated he's essentially bet the house on this this war. And as much as we might see people on on social media, one person saying this is the end of the Putin regime. Well, he's been in power this long for for reasons, and there are still alarming reports coming out of Russia of prominent figures and oligarchs meeting with all too uh, convenient accidents of Vladimir yes. Putin's government. But it's a source of hope, I think. And one of the things actually that is important is that when this is over, I think that we also need to to take a good look at the kind of Ukraine that is going to be built by Zelensky too. I mean, he 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 has enjoyed phenomenal ratings as a wartime leader. The, the gains that Ukraine's military is making are coming off their own bat. Yes, they're being supplied by the West, but as Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, warned, Putin doesn't regret this. He, he won't be giving up. Mm-hmm. And this isn't over. The, the, this war could drag on for longer yet. But the Ukrainian counteroffensive is a source of hope, I think, for the people of that country. And hopefully, when this is over, it will help shift the balance 
of Ukraine pertinent towards looking towards fully democratizing, addressing corruption. It will also, on a wider context, help address the issue of food prices around the world as well. And it'll give us a sense mm-hmm. actually that collectivism and collective security and multilateralism are the best ways to protect oneself in the world and actually not rather than just pulling up the drawbridge. So there'll be a lot of lessons coming out from Ukraine. And obviously Liz Truss will be keenly aware of this having been foreign secretary and one of her key counterparts is to keep mm-hmm. Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, in post as well. But a little bit of good news to finish on there, I think. Okay, Mike, thank you very much indeed. Strange times. We'll be talking again very soon, I'm sure. That's Mike Indian, uh, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.